Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, shalom, holy friends, great to see you. That was a little nigun from Nava Tehila, Nigun Tishrei. Um, I really like that nigun. If you search it, it's, uh, it's really beautiful. There's this um, uh, two people who sing it together over there. So friends, we are here at debate number 29. I hope you had a nice Hanukkah, a nice Hanukkah. We don't light the candles, but now we light our internal candles to keep the light aflame all year long until next year. Um, and now we can uh, um, uh, cut down on the donuts a little bit, at least me. <laughs> okay, debate number 29, the Musar movement versus the Hasidut. Musar versus the Hasidic movement. So let's start with a poll, friends, and let's see what you think about this. Is Judaism spiritual or ethical? Number one, Judaism is primarily a spiritual tradition. Number two, Judaism is primarily an ethical tradition. Number three, in Judaism, the spiritual and ethical are completely intertwined for me. Is Judaism primarily spiritual, primarily ethical, or are they completely intertwined for you? Okay, if whenever we have the results, Pam, we can post them up. Okay, 0% say it's primarily a spiritual tradition. Very interesting. 13% say it's an ethical tradition. And 88% say the spiritual and ethical are completely intertwined for them in Judaism. Okay, very interesting. So today we are going to explore the, our debate of the Musar movement versus the Hasidic movement. Now, again, this is not a debate that occurred in history specifically but it is two clashing ideologies that emerge in modernity. And for us to understand uh, the different components of Jewish life that each proponent was advocating for. So if you know, it's interesting. If I ask people what Judaism is about, whether I ask Jews or Gentiles, I think most people would po point to external things. They would point to synagogue, they would point to Israel, they would point to a Hanukkah, they might point to matzah, uh, you know, 
things that we can look at. Judaism is very visual, and there's many things we can point to. This debate is about who gets the real estate of our inner life, right? Who, who is going to be the tenant, or who is going to be the landowner, um, or who is going to be the, um, uh, the property manager of our inner life? And so plenty of competition in the outer life. And in the inner life, when it comes to our inner moral compass, our inner spirituality, what ideology from our tradition is most dominant? And in the pre-ideological era, pre-modernity, well, they weren't really consistent ideological camps. They were just ideas. The, the Talmudists were not ideologues. Right? Ideology is a modern idea for the most part. And so um, this is where we see the emergence of movements. And my hope is that in getting beyond denominations, we can see that these movements permeate throughout various denominations. Um, most certainly both of these do. I am not dealing here with the Hasidic movement as in like Satmer, Lubavitch, Breslov, like Hasidic Jews. I'm talking about Hasidut, Hasidic ideas that permeate reform, conservative, orthodox, reconstruction, renewal, secular, you know, essentially everything. And so too with Musa. So friends, two of our most profound movements to emerge out of religious Judaism at the birth of the modern era were the Hasidic movement and the Musar movement. And it seems clear that the Hasidic movement really remains extremely popular, extremely popular. Its numbers continue to grow within the Hasidic community and the learning of Hasidic ideas and the implementing of its practices are influential far beyond the community. But the Musar movement, which most of us only started hearing about over the last 10 years, the Musar movement, on the other hand, seems to have not enjoyed such staying power, perhaps even becoming a relic of the past. The ideas are still alive, for sure, for students of Judaism, especially robust students. But there are no longer strictly Musar ideological groups or major institutions as there once was. So why is this the case? I want to lay out four main differences between the two movements that may play a role as to why Hasidut won out and the Musar movement did not. Okay. The first major difference may be about the different understandings of human nature. A major part of Musar ideologies is that we must overcome our desire for pleasure and for selfishness. Where for many Musar teachers, we are in a battle between the self, between the lower angels and the higher angels, between the animal self and the soul. We are at a war with a part of the self. For a major segment of the Hasidic thinkers, on the other hand, it is not a war, but rather a channeling of energy. One channels one's desire for pleasure toward a deeper spiritual level rather than trying to squash it. The Baal Shem Tov, the founder of Hasidism, for example, emphasizes spiritual bliss. Rabbi Nachman, another Hasidic giant, stresses deep joy in Avodat Hashem, in the service of God. And so friends, um, just to um, make sure this point is clear, according to many of the Musar ideologues, and here, imagine this uh, in, in some self, self-help literature today, uh, similar ideas. In the Musar movement, there is basically there are basically forces that are destructive within us, and we have to fight them and squash them. It's almost like 
pretend you want your third Hanukkah donut. You want your third Hanukkah donut. You're like, oh, what do I do? I really want it. I really want this donut, you know? And you're going after this donut. So what do you do? They say, squash it. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta like break this desire. And you gotta use all your, all your, all your tools to be, be stronger than that desire for that third donut. I'm talking to myself here, you know. <laughs> um, or, or you could say, I can't fight these desires. I can't fight this. What I need to do is channel that desire. How do I find what's really the, a hunger in me? And how do I fulfill that hunger? I don't have to squash it. I can fulfill that hunger in a different way. I can channel that desire to a different, to a different means. It's like a child. If there's a child who's drawing, um, who's drawing on the wall with markers, you can either, you can either reprimand them. What are you doing with the markers? Or you can direct them to a piece of paper. So do you want to yell at the kid and say, don't draw on the wall? Or do you want to give them a piece of paper? So too, according to many Musar ideologies, just squash it. According to many of the Hasiduta ideologies, you got to uh, re-channel this desire. Okay, so this is a big difference on human nature and how we understand the will in relationship to our desire. Number two, a second major difference could be about the relationship between the self and the community. For the Musar teachers, the primary focus is on the self and the individual's growth. Surely there is a vad, a place for group reflection, but the spiritual work is about the individual's journey. For Hasidut, on the other hand, the community is primarily in, in, in virtually every facet of life. Okay, so to make sure this point is clear, in the self-help world, which in many ways is kind of similar to the Musar world, um, it is about the self. How do I find happiness? How do I find actualization? How do I grow in my wealth, in my relationships? How do I grow as a parent? How do I grow? It's about me and my growth. That's Musar. You can live alone in the forest or in your apartment and be a practitioner of Musar. For Hasidut, there is most certainly an emphasis on Heath Bodhidut, um, and um, uh, being alone and self-reflection and privacy. And yet there is such a power to communal practice that that's part of why the Hasidic movements are so strong because it is about the collective. You don't hear about Musar collectives in the same sort of way, certainly not in large groups, but like a picture like this, Hasidic groups, the, the power of the collective is very, very large. Okay, number three. A third major difference could be on the bar for excellence. The Musar movement had very high standards for growth and a very high bar for excellence. The Hasidic movement, on the other hand, they love stories about innocent children who don't know how to pray, whereas the Hasidic story emphasizes the simple, pious Jew. The Musar movement celebrates the elite, virtuous leaders. So again. Number three is who is the emphasis, the elite master or the, the, the commoner? Number four, and there's many other differences I could point to, but here's the last I'll point to now. A fourth major difference could be on the level of consciousness. For Musar, the work is all or almost all on the conscious, moral, intellectual, and behavioral level. It's the stuff we can look at and articulate. For the Hasidic movement, the work goes far beyond the conscious realm. There is a deeper aspiration to journey into the mystical, 
and the subconscious. Okay, friends, so just to rehash those four big differences. Number one, human nature. Musars in, in many ways says fight, fight desires that don't serve you. And Hasidut says channel them. Number two, is it, it Musar says it's about the self in many ways. Hasidut is about the collective. Number three, Musar is about the elite person, the, the elite mensch, the person who is mastering their character, who is a role model and mentor for everyone versus Hasidut, which yet certainly has rebbies, but also celebrates the commoner. And number four is on the level of consciousness. Musar is about the concrete parts of our life, our behavior, our, our, our ethical lives, um, our, our speech and our practice. And Hasidut goes further into the realm of the subconscious or the unconscious. So of course, there are many exceptions with these four identified differences, but there, these may be some of the most central factors as to why Hasidut won out and the Musar movement lost. But such a measure, measure of success is only on the plain numbers. From a different measure, we might suggest that the Musar movement won and that it is a move from strict Talmud learning to the focus on Jewish values and Jewish character. One might argue that while most American Jews and North American Jews don't identify themselves as Musar practitioners, that they do emphasize Jewish values over Jewish law. And they do emphasize Jewish character over Jewish learning. Now, that is not directly because of the Musar movement, we can say, but it may not be absent of the movement's influence either. If you ask the average American Jew, do you hold by Jewish law? They say no. If you say, are you inspired by Jewish values? They say yes. If you say, do you engage in daily Jewish learning? They say no. If you say, do you think about your Jewish character traits? They would say yes. It also seems safe to assume that more North American Jews think about Jewish values than about Jewish mystical practice. So we have shown some possible differences in ideologies between these two schools of thought. But to be sure, there's also enormous similarities between the movements as well. Both seek to awaken the heart to our service. Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, the founder of the Musar movement, writes about the need for our emotional engagement. They both want to awaken the heart, right? Judaism was dry and cold, and these two movements want to awaken us, awaken our passion. Here is an Or Yisrael, Yisrael Salanter. He writes, so that one become accustomed to this Musar wisdom, whose ways branch into two, the first being to inflame the souls through the purification of thought, through these sub sublime studies, the study of Musar, to learn with lips on fire, with correct apprehension, depicting each idea in a broad manner and bringing it close through familiar imaginings until the heart gets excited, whether to a great or small extent, and thereby it will be empowered to prepare the limbs to actualize every good deed on its behalf, whether by desire or by strength or by will. So friends, we can't just wait for something to excite us some great movie or some awesome book or some phone call that we, you know, we're waiting for. In Musar, we need hit lahavut. We need to actively awaken our passion each day. Just as we open our eyes and we get out of bed and we move our body, so too we need to arouse the heart. We need to actively excite ourselves. And these guys, some of them will even jump up and down. They're gonna jump up and down, get excited, bound, pound on the table. We need to physiologically, 
um, awaken the deeper affective realm in life, right? We can't just allow that for happen. And as as we get older, you know, it's very easy for a four year four year old to cry and then laugh and then cry and then laugh. As we get older, it's easier in some ways to be more emotionally numb, um, to be which in some ways is a virtue to be more emotionally stable. In other ways, is a vice because we're we're not awakened to our full emotional capacities. And so we need this hitla avut. Yisrael Salantra says we need practices that awaken us. And it might be prayer, it might be meditation, it might be jumping, but we need to awaken ourselves. Also, that gives us a control of our emotional life. If we're not in control, then we allow all the negative stuff that's just bottling up in us to take over, right? We have somebody upset us with an email 10 minutes ago, something triggered some past bad memory or trauma, right? Something, you know, uh, is part of our anxiety. We're gonna allow all this negative stuff to control us. Unless we take our hit lahavut, we take control and we cultivate this excitement, this passion, this gratitude, this, this patience, this kindness in us, we awaken it. And so Yisrael Salantar is going to help us move in that path. Now, again, we're showing similarities now. So for the Baal Shem Tov, once again, the founder of Hasidut and his followers, we need to go so deep to the place of a broken heart. Right? This is not just about joy, also a brokenness. The deepest joy is found in brokenness. Right? They're not binaries. They're, they're interconnected. This theme comes up again and again. Consider this story. One time, the Baal Shem Tov of blessed memory commanded Rabbi Zev Kitsis of blessed memory that he should learn the Kavanot, these special mystical intentions of every shofar blast, because he would be the one to blow the shofar on Rosh Hashanah. Rabbi Zev learned the kavanot, the intentions, and wrote them down on a piece of paper to look at when the shofar was being blown. He then put the paper in his pocket. When it came time for shofar, he began to look for the paper, but he wasn't able to find it. He looked to and fro and realized he did not know the appropriate mystical intentions. He became so upset and he cried out with a broken heart and the shofar was blown without the kavanot. After this, the Baal Shem Tov said to him, in the king's palace, there are many rooms and chambers and different keys for each door. But an axe has the capability of all the keys. An axe can open the lock of any door. So it is true with the kavanot. Each heavenly gate has a different kavanah, but a broken heart can open them all. When a person breaks their heart before God, it is possible for them to enter through all the gates in the palace of the King of Kings, the Holy One be blessed. So friends, here we see once again, the simplicity emphasized in Hasidut, but not only the simplicity, the simplicity as the pathway towards opening the heart, right? That um, uh, there is a, an appreciation for the complex, and yet it is the most simple in many ways that is the key, um, it is the key towards arousing our hearts. And in so doing, our truest and most pure service can emerge. So friends, how do we achieve, achieve such emotional engagement? For Rav Salanter, the pathway is through repetition and mantra. Here's how he explains it. And therefore, it is appropriate to repeat Musar's sayings many times over. And specifically, when one comes across a saying of the sages or some other words of Musar by which they feel they would be affected and they would penetrate into the chambers of their heart, they should review and repeat it with deep affect many, many times. 
until it becomes engraved upon the tablets of the heart and as frontlets between their eyes, then upon this going outside and going to rest upon their bed, this teaching will ring in their ears like a bell and will not depart from their memory. So from, for Musar, repetition, repetition, right? Can continue to say, if you're down on yourself, I love myself, I love myself. There is a light in me. There is a light in me. Repeat. And in these visualizations and these statements and mantras, we will internalize the truth through this repetition. Now, with all of this, the goal is to weaken our physical desires and arouse these deeper emotional capacities and intellectual capacities. And through our anticipation and preparation, we can overcome those desires. Here's how Salanter explains it further. To have foresight, to look out from the get-go but before the days of evil come, to prepare counsel and a plan of how to conduct oneself and others, and to diminish the matter to make the experience easier until awe grows greater than desire. For this is the entirety of the person, to strengthen awe and weaken desire with virtue and wisdom. What, what an amazing thing. <clears throat> That also, once we start to weaken that desire and we start to strengthen these more noble virtues within us, we, we cling so much to these more noble virtues. We're trying to get back to the novel. We're trying to get back to volunteering. We're trying to get back to connection, to humans, to God, to our cat or dog. We are trying to get to these more noble ideas that those more petty desires don't start to fall away. So for the Baal Shem Tov, on the other hand, we don't want to deny our body or our desire. Consider this teaching. It is written, when you will see the donkey of your enemy collapsing under its burden, and you are inclined to refrain from aiding him, you shall nevertheless aid him, it says in Exodus. The Baal Shem Tov applied this instruction to the body and the material self. Oh, interesting enough, hamor, which means donkey, also means materiality. Very interesting. Initially, the Torah is saying, you may see your body as an enemy resisting your soul's objectives, collapsing under the burden of the mitzvot. You may therefore be inclined to fight the body by denying its needs and mortifying it. Says the Torah, you must aid your soul's enemy. Purify the body and refine it, but do not break it. So friends, this is a classical way for Hasidic commentators to interpret Torah. As opposed to a common, uh, a typical co uh, commentator who would say, um, this is literally dealing with an enemy. You, you find your enemy on the road, they're struggling, you help them. The Hasidic commentators say, no, this is, this is about inner life, not external life. The enemy is the body. And rather than fight the body, you need to help, you need to help the enemy. And so you need to help the body, even though the soul is your true friend, you need to help it. Okay, so to move towards a conclusion here. Thankfully, for Jews who wanna go deeper in their learning and practice, there are so many avenues to pursue. We need not view the Hasidic path and Musar path at odds with one another. We can view them as complementary paths. Rav Kook, after all, was a Hasid, but he also wrote works of Musar. While there was, and there still is, a battle between the rationalist and mystical camps, we can move beyond that battle. May we strive to do so as we each individually and communally find the appropriate avenue by which to deepen our learning, practice, and service. 
Okay, friends, I would love to hear from you. I would love to hear from you. Shmuley? Yes. Hi. Um, just on hearing what you said, it seems to me that Musar is more involved with the brain or the mind and the Hasid are more involved with the heart and emotion. Are you stopping there? Yeah, I mean, okay. that, that's my takeaway. Great, great. Yes, so I, so, so I think one of the commonalities is awakening the emotional realm. However, I think you're exactly right that one of the big differences is in our moral intellectual realm and behavioral realm versus um, the deeper uh, uh, subconscious spiritual realm. I think that's exactly right, Eileen. And um, there are certainly exceptions and certainly overlap. But I think one of the things we want to ask ourselves, and we may have such a deep Jewish life that we embrace all of it, but for those of us who have a limited time each day or each week towards our Jewish practice, we'll have to make choices. Am I primarily thinking about tikkun olam and about the realm of kindness and the realm of my ethical behavior? Am I primarily thinking about my inner spiritual life and clinging to God and, and meditation and prayer? Of course, there's a path for all of that. But Hasidut wants us to totally immerse in the spiritual realm, right? And the behavioral realm will follow later. And the Musar teachers want us to hyper-focus in on, our, on, that, um, on, that, um, on that practice realm, the realm of the behavior. So thank you, Eileen, for that, that sharp point. Yes, Lauren. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of got into Musa a little over a year ago, and I, I kind of see it as a, a refinement. It's like pencil sharpener would be to a pencil, you know, you're, 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 you're refining it, but I wouldn't put it as totally intellectual. I mean, part of the, I'm, I'm using Alan Marinus's book, but I'm also working with the spiritual director and IJS. And you really couldn't do Musar like alone on a mountain because it's so much involved with how we relate with other human beings. I mean, you know, Chesed, which is a biggie and probably every Midah is involved with Chesed to some degree is really, you know, interconnectedness, loving interconnectedness. So I, I wouldn't call Musar necessarily totally intellectual and, and not emotional. It is a more intellectual approach than Hasidut. And I must say Hasidut never appealed to me. I grew up in a very meat nugget home, but, um, but I see the beauty of it. But anyways, that's my take. Yeah, Thanks. thank you, Lauren. That, that's a great point. And I, I think when I say intellectual, I think there's two different things that can come to mind. One type of the intellectual realm is like what we think of as academic. Right, it's, um, it's very critical. It's research oriented, it's dialectical, it is, um, uh, it is an academic, academically rigorous process. The other thing I mean by intellectual is that it, something is mindful. It is very mind heavy. And here I would distinguish mindfulness versus mindlessness. In many ways, I would put Musar in the mindfulness camp. I would put Hasidut in the mindlessness camp. Now that's not denigrating or elevating one or the other, but I think that um, that in many ways in Hasidut, we all, we, in, like in many spiritual practices, we almost want to silence the mind. The mind is getting in the way of a deeper way of being. In the in 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 the spherot, 
only the top three of the 10 Sfirot are kind of upper realm. That's Chabad, Chachma Binadat, right? Of the 10 Sfirot in Kabbalah. Um, but the others are bodily oriented and soul oriented in a, in a deeper realm. Whereas in Musar, as opposed to being mindless, getting going into the soul realm and, and silencing the mind, Musar is about kind of a hyper intentionality about everything we're doing, right? Very aware of what's happening, very in the mind. And so that doesn't mean it's not also deeply emotional as you, as you well pointed out, Lauren, most certainly deeply emotional. Um, but I think very hyper aware of those feelings and of those sensitivities. And I think that that's another interesting difference. Some people in a spiritual practice really wanna be hypersensitive right, hypersensitive. Uh, others, they want to kind of numb those sensitivities and kind of transcend. So here's another difference. In Hasidu, alcohol is um, in, in many circles very valued. You kind of want to numb the mind. You want to drink and have a fabringen. You want to, um, you want to get into a deeper place. In Musar, you would never see that. You would never like drink, that's gonna numb your sensitivity. If you're like me, after a glass of wine, most certainly too, you're gonna to be slightly less sensitive with your jokes and with your sensitivities than you are gonna be if you, were, if you hadn't had any drink at all. And so for some people that might be better. I, I used to know a Chabadnik that used to make Kiddush over a, a whole Kiddush cup of, of vodka. So yeah, vodka, what are you doing? He said, I went to the Rebbe and the Rebbe said, I'm too shy, I'm too shy. And so he said, make Kiddush over a cup of vodka and you'll be a little less shy. And so his job was to go and do outreach and he couldn't do outreach. So the Rebbe said, Here you go. okay, I'm not sure I would give that advice uh, you know, to, to anybody, but that was the advice he got over there. So anyways, Lauren makes a great point there. And, um, and this is a great question for you. Are you someone when you take a vacation that you like a mindful vacation or a mindless vacation? Some people, they wanna lay on a beach and turn off their brain and just sit in the sun and think about nothing. And other people, they want to go travel to a museum and they want to engage in photography and they want to catch up with old friends and read new books. And so, of course, maybe you like both at different times, but so too, like, how do we recharge ourselves? Is it mindful or, mind or mindless? Yes, Matthew Newman. Uh, question, how do the modern Orthodox view and react to Musar? Now I've been studying Musar about four or five years I have former work colleagues who are modern Orthodox who are astounded that we reform reconstructionists were studying something that they've been studying, a completely different view than the Hasidim. Yeah. Yeah. So this has been this has been such a wonderful development that in the last few decades in liberal Judaism, we now see Musar practice. And part of that credit is due to the Musar Institute and Alan Marinus. Um, you know, as mentioned, and um, certainly there are others involved as well. My, my dear friend, David, Rabbi David Jaffe, uh, Rabbi Amy um, uh, Eilberg, she's the first woman ordained in the conservative movement. Um, you know, certainly uh, leaders in the reform movement as well who are launching VODs and, you know, and like Temple Chai and other reform congregations in this community who have done that work for a while at the Shalom Center. And so, I am not surprised that Orthodox Jews would be amazed by Reformed Jews doing Musar practice because what Orthodox think Jews think Reformed Jews do is Reformed Jews, in their mind, um, have, have a Hanukkah menorah next to a Christmas tree and essentially 
um, have nothing else but that. Um, essentially, um, are not Jewishly knowledgeable or not Jewishly engaged. Um, and if they are, it you know it would be kind of a, a Hanukkah Christmas tree. Now that's not me um, disparaging interfaith relationships. That's yeah. not me disparaging those who only engage more loosely, but it, I'm, I'm merely sharing the perception Orthodox have. And if I shared the perception that reform had of Orthodox, it would be of these like wildly barbaric people who don't use deodorant and, you know, don't speak English properly, whatever the case is. And so like, it's good to build bridges and see these aren't true. And, and so they would be amazed because Musar has such depth to, to it. Um, they would be amazed. Here's the other reason. Musar in the liberal Jewish, Jewish world today is, is by and large a happy phenomenon. It is a joyful phenomenon. Whereas Musar in the Orthodox world, they would call it Musar. Musar is a little bit disparaging. It's disparaging. Now, let me remind us that there's three different camps of Musar. There was Slobodka. Hey, I've, I've got to leave now. I've got another appointment, but thank you so much. Okay, all right. All right, well, all right. I'll keep going on your question anyways. But so in the Musar world, there's, there's Navardic, Slobodka, and Kelm. And there, these are three very different approaches to Musar. And um, in one camp, um, you, you, uh, you will see in, um, uh, that there is an emphasis on the greatness of the human being. You are so great, you are so great, you are so great, you should actualize your potential. In another camp, you are so nothing, you are so nothing, you need to lower yourself. They would hang a dead fish from the ceiling of the Beit Midrash. To remind you, you're nothing but some but but flesh who's going to die and be buried under the ground, right? And so those were very different different forces. In the Orthodox world, when people think musr, they normally think someone's going to give you a good talking to, right? You need some musr. You need to be like put in your place. And so they'd be very surprised by by liberal Judaism engaging musr. What are you? Very strange. And so um, uh, yeah. And so uh, I think it's a wonderful phenomenon that Jews of all stripes and uh, are engaging in Musar more and more. Now, let me say one other thing, even though Matthew left uh, to his, his great question there, which is um, to this point around, around um, what do the Orthodox think of this? Now, both the emergence of Hasidut and the emergence of, of Musar were deemed as great, great threats to Jewish tradition. Now that seems strange today because these seems like traditional practices, but essentially your job is to observe halakha and learn Talmud, obviously more than that, but by and large that. Now you want to move away from the Talmudic academy and away from the study of Jewish law, and you want to move to the focus on character or focus on the soul. That is a distortion and a perversion of the holy enterprise we're a part of. So these were deemed to be enormous threats. And so um, uh, it totally makes sense why liberal Jews would engage in such practices. Uh, and yet it would be astounding uh, to those traditionalists. Hi, Zach. Great to hear from you, Zach. Hey, Rabbi Shmuley, thanks for the great um, kind of basics, Musar versus Hasidut. Really appreciate that. Um, I think, you know, it seems like many of us, like you mentioned, you know, being North American Jews are and have been drawn to the Musar movement for various reasons. Um, and I think that maybe I was a little, even a little surprised by some of the ways you describe Hasidut as probably being more attractive to me just in your general description than maybe I would have um, described on my own. 
Um, and, you know, like, like Lauren so beautifully said, you know, talking about uh, chesed being key to many of the midot um, within the Musar movement and chasidut comes from the word chesed, right? It's loving kindness, um, you know, talking about channeling human nature and emphasis on the collective and the commoner and, and the subconscious. Um, so I guess my, my question is um, maybe... You know, I, I think we've become very polarized in a lot of ways in our world. And I'm wondering, you know, maybe your thoughts on why um, this kind of one versus the other has developed, especially, I guess, from me just hearing this, like it does seem like there's great value um, that we can learn from Hasidut. Uh, and maybe what can we do as North American Jews who maybe are more drawn to Musar um, you know, to utilize Hasidut, maybe more so in our practice. Mm, mm, I love it. I love it. Amazing points by Zach. Um, amazing. So yeah, I think one of the reasons in this debate series, we frame things in binaries is ultimately to break through those binaries and see the value on both sides and see that it's ultimately, in many cases, a false binary. And so even though these wars existed in our Jewish history between these opposing camps in many ways, and they're fighting for the mind and soul of the people. Um, I think that we can see how, as Zach is pointing out so beautifully, how Musa and Hasidu can be complementary uh, and a synergy can be created in so many ways because um, most, certainly, um, most certainly being a mensch without a spiritual dimension there would be Jewishly lacking. Um, and so too, um, being, a a, a, a being pious without an ethical foundation would most certainly be lacking. Um, and so to see this combination, to put the chesed back in Hasidic, as you said, is such a beautiful idea. I mean, today, when we think of Hasidic Jews, um, it has very little to do with what early Hasidut has to suggest. Hasidic Jews today are by and large, with the exception of Lubavitch and Breslov, they are exclusivists. They don't want outsiders. And they also... Um, are about the strictest observance possible and about separation from society and from the rest of the Jewish people. The early Hasidut, the early Hasidic thinkers were radical as opposed to the, the conformists of modern day. They were radical thinkers. They, were spon uh, they, they embraced spontaneity. They embraced radical kindness and radical theologies and practices. And, um, and I think today these two can really enhance one another and help us break through some of that polarization as you're talking about. So what are some Hasidic practices we can start to embrace, embrace as Zach, Zach asked here? And I think there are so many, there are so many, but I think the main one, the main idea is depth over breath, is depth over breath. Rather than running as fast as we can to do as much as we can, how do I embrace the depth of this moment? Rather than going through the prayer book and saying every word, um, how do I take one word and focus for five minutes on this word, right? Like shake with the word, feel the word, say it over and over, like think about the letters, meditate on the letters, like internalize how I can live with this word and this idea, like check the gematria, the numerology of this word, like go deeper and deeper, deeper and deeper, but not externally. We're not zooming out, we're zooming in, we're zooming in. And so too, um, with any practice, if someone is going to put on tefillin or they're going to make kiddush or they're going to um, give tzedakah, whatever we're going to do, don't just do it. Like, do it with all of you. Do it with all of you. Like, awaken your entirety of yourself in this. And they, and they want this in everything. 
they want this in how we eat. When I eat a piece of food, I didn't properly enjoy it. I want all of my, all of my energies weren't about focused on it, eating this food. If I am speaking, I'm not totally present in the words I'm saying and where they're coming from in me, in my realms of consciousness. If I'm in an intimate, um, an intimate relationship, in a, a physically intimate relationship, I'm too much in the mind. I need to be immersed in this in a spiritual way, not just in body, not just in the mind. I need to spiritually be immersed. So everything is about going layers and layer, layers deeper. And I would challenge each of us um, to think of one thing we could do today that might normally you know, um, take 10 seconds, whether it's a bite of an orange, whether it's um, um, you know, something we're gonna say or do, and think about taking that 10 second act and prolonging it into a two minute act. Even walking, like when you stand up out of your chair and walk to the door, what if you took baby steps? and like focused on every little movement. And how does your foot feel on the ground? And how does your breath feel as you move, right? And where do you feel heaviness in your body and lightness in your body? So everything we do. And so I think that what's amazing about that is that Hasidut moves spiritual life away from just the rituals we do into everything we do. Everything we do now has spiritual depth. There's not the spiritual and the mundane, there's not the holy uh, or the sacred and, um, and, and, and the non-sacred. Everything can be holy when we bring our full self to it. Who else wants to jump in here? Shmuley. Hi, Cheryl. Hi, Shmuley. Um, so what you, you said about um, Hasidism, you said with the exception of Chabad and Satmar, the, the two that you used. Chabad um, and Breslov. Chabad and Breslov. Oh, the Breslov. Okay. Um, so that um, Chabad is totally, Chabad is the one you think of as being so like reaching out to everyone. I mean, it's, it's, that's my experience. Just on Sunday, for example, when you just talked about the Christmas tree next to the, the menorah, uh, you know, we went to the uh, Tempe Arts Festival and they're up on the big A mountain at ASU next to the Christmas tree is the big Chabad menorah and they're everywhere. I mean, they're everywhere. So what, I, I know that there's a kind of some disparagement or difference of opinion about Chabad versus the rest of Hasidism. What, what, where, where, where's that divide? Okay, awesome, awesome. So um, there's so much to say there. Thank you so much. I'll, I'll, I'll try to say it concisely. So yes, so, in Hasidut, you want to be, in the Hasidic movement today is what I mean to say, you want to be exclusivist. You don't want to marry, you don't want your child to marry a different Hasidic Jew from a different Hasidic sect, right? Yeah. If you're a Belzer Hasid, your child needs to marry a Belzer Hasid, right? If you are um, Tans, you know, if you are, I mean, go through the, go through the whole list, you know, you're a Babav or Hasid, whatever kind, kind of Hasid you are, I mean, there's hundreds of different groups. You want to stay within that group. Um, ideologically, you know, familially, uh, everything. And you don't want to engage with the outside world. Again, Satmar is the largest Hasidic group in America and they want nothing to do. I mean, they, I mean, they had a split in their own sense. ranks recently. And, and um, yes, something... oh, uh, if you could meet yourself there. Uh, um, if um, you, don't want to, you don't want to engage with the outside, most certainly you don't want to engage with uh, non-Orthodox Jews, most certainly. Uh, you know, in, in in many cases, not even 
um, uh, other Hasidic groups. I mean, Satmar and, and Lubavitch have been at war with each other for a long time in New York. They, they really mm -hmm. dislike each other. And, um, but yes, but Lubavitch and Breslov are the two exceptions. Now, all of, all of Hasidic Judaism today is very focused on Geula, redemption. We want Mashiach now. We want Mashiach now. They want the Messianic era now, right? And, um, um, and how do you get there is a, is a question. And so for most of those Hasidic groups, they themselves are going to be the ones that get us there, right? But for Chabad and Breslov, it needs all of us. They really believe in the Baal Shem Tov teaching that every Jew is a letter in the Torah. And there is no complete Torah unless every Jew is involved. And so this, of course, is not pluralism. They don't embrace multiple truths, but it is inclusive in that they want everyone to be a part of their model of Judaism. Now, what's interesting is the, the Hasidic groups are very Rebbe focused. And every Hasidic Jew, sorry, sorry, every Hasidic group has a Rebbe that they go to for everything, except the two outreach groups, Breslov and Lubavitch, their Rebbe's are dead and they never were replaced. Rebbe Nachman is dead of the Breslov movement and he, was, and he wasn't replaced. And of course, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe is dead and was not replaced. And it's interesting that the two movements that don't have Rebbe's that are alive, of course, you ask some Chabad followers, they'll say the Rebbe's alive, but that's a different conversation. Um, and um, are the two movement are the two movements the, the two outreach movements are the two that don't have the living rabbis, which is very interesting. Now, um, um, interesting enough, interesting enough um, is um, and by the way, this also intersects with politics. Prior to the Trump era, prior to the Trump era, Hasidic Jews voted on one factor: self-interest. I don't care if you're a left-wing Democrat. I don't care if you're a right-wing Republican. Are you going to give money to the yeshivas? If you give money to our yeshivas, I'll vote for you. I don't care if you're Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, whoever you are, I will vote for you. Then in the Trump era, that changed um, for many Hasidic groups. There are a few that are purely self-interest motivated, but now some are ideologically motivated. That's a, that's a huge shift in American Hasidism, okay? Um, but once again, that is a sign of... of um, of, uh, of, of shutting out the external world. We don't care about your, your politics. Now, Chabad, Chabad is very far right politically, uh, is very far right politically for various reasons. And it, it, decades ago, there was major public disagreement between the reform movement and Chabad around what Cheryl brought up, these menorahs in the public square. Everyone knows Chabad wants a, a Hanukkah on every street corner. You know, they want to publicize this miracle and put it on the government property. And the reform movement really fought against that. They want a separation of religion and state. And they see that as an infringement of, uh, and, and Jews going too far in having um, Jewish symbolism on, on such property. And so there's even public debates that emerged in papers, you know, in the 70s in particular, around uh, the Lubavitcher Rebbe and some of the, the, the reform leaders around some of this stuff. So it's very interesting this role of uh, th this role of the Jew in society um, and how that how that plays out over there. Thank you. Yes, Rabbi Biller. Yeah, hey, um, glad to be here. So I have a question: if um, if Hasidism is inviting us into the sacredness of everything, and, that, and that's a very beautiful thing. Um, 
what like how do they how do they set the limits? You know, in Habdallah we say, you know, we're we're dividing between Kodesh and Chol, between holy and plain. How do they if everything's sacred, like how do you have different levels or how to just how do they deal with that? Okay, that is amazing. That is amazing. Thank you so much. So okay, okay. So just to make sure everyone understood Rabbi Biller's question here. Um, if in one theology of Hasidut, um, everything is holy, then what do you do with this whole Havdalah, this whole, uh, you know, Mavdil ben Kodesh l'chol, this whole notion of distinguishing between the holy and the, and the mundane? And, um, um, and, and I think here um, is where Hasidut is once again immensely valuable in our ability to, to live on multiple planes of reality. On one level of, of reality, it is true, like that there is tefillin and a safer Torah. And there are things with God's name on it that has a higher level of kedusha, a higher level of holiness than my pen does, right? Um, or than a pig does, right? Nothing against the pig, just as a quintessential non-kosher uh, food. Um, and yet, once they say everything was created by God for a purpose, and not only that, everything is infused with godliness and sparks of holiness. Now this pen has sparks of holiness. The pig has sparks of holiness, right? Everything is, so now what do I do? Okay, so at this moment, I'm existing on a halakhic plane or a plane of surface reality of how I engage in the world. I'm not going to eat the pig, right? I'm, I'm going to write with the pen, but the Torah, I'm going to kiss. Okay, so there is a behavioral realm of separation. But when I move to a deeper spiritual plane of reality, then I see that there is only oneness. There is only the one, and all separation is an illusion, right? Mm -hmm. All separation, a, a differentiation is an illusion. At the end of the day, there's only unity. There's only oneness. Everything is holy. Everything is holy. And so I think part of it is that we live in, a, in an olam sheker. We live in a world of lies. We, we live in a world of lies. And part of those lies uh, part of the foundation of those lies is the lie of separation. And we are longing to reunify. That is what sexual relations are, basar achat, our flesh together, the power of unification. It's the power of devekut, of clinging to God, where we become one. It is the power of community singing together, holding hands, dancing together, when we feel our achtut, Israel, our unity of, of the people. And so there is um, these different planes of reality. There are these different planes of reality. And that once again is where the, is where the misnagdim think this is very dangerous. Whoa, whoa, you're conflating the boundaries here, right? There's real holiness and real, real, um, uh, uh, you know, there really is the mundane. There is the good and the evil. Once, oh, good and the evil. That's another paradigm, right? The good and the evil are also gonna be conflated for Hasid, in Hasidut. Right, the good and the, the evil is also good. Now, for many of us, that'll be very problematic. Don't tell me the evil is good. Evil is evil, right? But in Chassidut, the evil itself is part of God's will. It's all part of the uni the unified plan. So this is quite complicated. So, um, what do you think, Rabbi Billa? I think it's a really great answer. It's really interesting. It's a, <laughs> um, you know, I have a friend who, uh, when Shabbat starts, he says to me. I'm going from the sacred to the spectacularly sacred. 
wow. you know, that every day is sacred and now Shabbat is like an extra sacred. It's very beautiful. Yeah, that, that is, that, I love it. I love it. Yeah. And to go, to go from the special to the most special, you know, yeah. it, it, that's, you know, it's a really, uh, it's a really great way to think of it. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. We have one more person who wants to jump in. Oh, yes. I see. Um, I see Lauren's question. If nobody else is going to jump in, I'll go to Laura's question, but let me give another moment. Please. Okay, great. So Lauren asks about the problem of Avodazara with the emphasis of the Rebbe. Okay, so there's mm. really a lot to say there as well. Uh, now, it's interesting. When we sometimes want to differentiate Christianity and Judaism, we sometimes oversimplify. And one of the things we might say if we're trying to differentiate is Christians believe you pray through an intermediary and Jews say there's no intermediary. Jews pray directly to God. Christians pray through through the Son. Right, right. Now, there's a lot of different kinds of Christians and Christians pray differently. But for many Christians, you pray through the Son, Jesus Christ, to get to um, the Father or the Spirit. Or, you, know, uh, you know, just talking about uh, Catholicism for a moment. And so Jews, no intermediaries. There's only one God, not, not three dimensions, and you pray directly. However, for Hasidic Jews, they pray through the Rebbe. They pray through the Rebbe. Now, not, not always, not in every moment, but in many cases, they are channeling their tefillah through the Rebbe. And uh, now to be sure, the Lubavitcher Rebbe has this great Torah he teaches that he prays through his sender. Remind, reminder, a sender is... A prayer, a prayer like this. Um, and so he says, I'm praying through the shender. He feels the physicality as a, as a, as a vehicle towards the, the spirituality. And, uh, and so they're praying through him and he's praying through his shender. It's almost like these laser beams going across the room, you know. But I think, I think this idea, some would say, is problematic in Jewish theology. This idea of... of the worship of a Mashiach or the seeing of a Rebbe as a Mashiach or the praying through them or them being a vehicle um, to access God. Now in Lubavitch, Lauren's saying that it goes a step further. It goes a step further in that um, this idea that the Lubavitch Rebbe, for, 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 for the Mashiachist, for the Mashiachist Chabad, the way you can usually differentiate with the men is whether they have uh, bent they've bent their black hat. If it's still a circular black hat in front, it's, um, they're not, they, they don't want to be uh, seen as a mashichist, as a, as a messianist in this regard. If they've bent the, the front of their black hat, it's kind of like a, 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 like a, um, like a trumper versus a diehard trumper. Uh, you know, like a diehard trumper wants to change the American flag. It's now a blue flag or there's a stripe or the flag is upside down. So to, like, they want to say it, like, it's broken. Like America is broken essentially. And um, so, so the Chabadnik who doesn't want to identify such, where's the normal black hat? The one who breaks the front says it's, it, it's broken. The Rebbe, is, the Rebbe is here, like Geula is now, Mashiach is now. And we need, we need to um, re-embrace this Messiah. The Rebbe is, is Mashiach. And, um, and they are praying through this person. We know that we don't. Um, uh, uh, and, and them continuing to almost merge the divine and the messianic in a sense, um, which 
like once again, in Christianity is quite common. The, the Messiah is a part of God. But in Judaism, the Messiah is not a part of God. The Messiah is a different entity um, from, from God. And so uh, this gets quite complicated. So friends, we're going to pause here. It has been so wonderful to learn with you. And I hope you'll join us for our debate next week. Our debate next week, debate number 30, is on the topic of Hobbes. Remember Thomas Hobbes? Versus the anarchist. And the way this is framed in Jewish thought is, should we have a melech or no melech? Should Jews have a king or no king? Hobbes versus the anarchists. Thanks for joining us, friends. Hope to see you next week or sooner. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemadrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.